Well, hi everybody, my name's Toby Miller. I'm in the home of Edward Buscombe, and I'm very pleased today on January the 15th, 2019, to be speaking to Ed about his career, his work, his thoughts. How are you today, Ed? I'm fine, thank you. Very good. So, my understanding is somewhat minimal of what the Society for Cinema and Media Studies wants from us. Yes. So I think we should just have a nice time. We'll give them what we've got. We'll give them what we've got. And we have nothing, we'll have nothing left in the tank. No, right. So perhaps we could start by your telling me how you first got interested in the screen. And I'm thinking principally of movies, but of course yeah. your work also touched a lot on television. Yeah. Well, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't like movies. <laughs> um, when I was very young, maybe six or seven, I used to drag my little brother off to the cinema every, every time there was a Roy Rogers or a Gene Autry film on, I had to go and see it. And it's still the same today. <laughs> <laughs> well, in those days, we preferred Roy Rogers because there were more fights and less, less bloody kissing. Music. Yeah, kissing. less music. Oh, less kissing, yes. Yeah. We don't like that sort of but, thing. But um, I now prefer Gene, who's a much better singer, and his films are a bit more sophisticated, but... I'm Not very. <laughs> we went to the Gene Autry Museum once when you visited me in LA. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. It's a great place. It was a great place. I so was, I was going to edit a series of books um, for them with a guy um, who was the in charge of their research program. Um, but when I submitted the list, the the board, which consisted of Asian movie stars and I don't know, I'm sure there were worthy people on it decided this was all a bit too highfalutin for them and that they didn't want this kind of stuff. So this, the book series never got off oh. the ground, which was a shame. That's too bad. What we did do together, though, yeah. was Kevin and I, Kevin Mulroy, he, they had a huge collection of uh, European uh, movie posters for Westerns, for American Westerns, Polish, French, German, whatever. During the Cold War? Uh, some of them during the Cold War. There's a great Polish uh, movie poster of High Noon, which, ha which is linked to solidarity as Gary Cooper walks down the street. And, and um, so they put on an exhibition of these, and Kevin and I did a, a catalogue, which was kind of fun. But anyway, um, yes, yeah, so um, I, I always liked Westerns, and then I, then I got older and I liked other films as well. But, you know, we saw in those days in England, um, almost all American films would come our way. And some British films too, but we preferred American films on the whole. And rightly so, and you still do. <laughs> and rightly so. So we're talking about the, the late 40s. Yes. Now, and these Westerns, what some uneducated souls would call B-movies. Yes. They would have been like second bill to, in a matinee, to another film, a longer film? Well, we had a little cinema in the small town in Devon where I grew up, which was called The Cinema, with stunning originality. <laughs> and, and definiteness, not a cinema, but the cinema. And they only used to be open in the evenings um, from about six, they, oh. they run a programme. Um, so um, I think sometimes these films were shown on their own without anything else. And then there would, later there would be a main feature, but they were often part of the double bill, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. was it required that you watch 
a short film with God Save the King or Tripping the Colour or something before? No, not films, but there was the national anthem at the end. Uh, By the time the last bar was played, there wasn't anybody left in the cinema. So you would drag your younger brother around, the two of you. Yeah, he invariably fell asleep because he's the kind of guy who falls asleep at odd times in old places. (laughs) But I would... uh, I would persevere. Yeah, so uh, I saw a lot of um, movies that way. Yeah. And then I, I still retained an interest in Westerns. And I, when I was at university, I had a good friend who uh, knew more about Westerns than I did. And he took me to lots of films that I hadn't known about. This is now early 60s? Yeah, uh, no, this is late. Uh, yeah, it's sort of early to mid-60s, yeah. 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 He took me to a screening of um, Sam Peckinpah's first film, Ride the High Country, which mm-hmm. for some reason was called Guns in the Afternoon in, in England. I don't never found out why. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. And so I kind of uh, extended my range. And then, um, when I was um, uh, back at university as a graduate, I... Um, I saw an ad in some film mag or whatever for a summer school that was being organised by the BFI. The British Film Institute? Yes. This was 1967. Right. They were running a two-week summer school on the Western at uh, St Andrews in Scotland. And I thought, that sounds fun. Yeah. So I signed up for it and um, I went up there and um, had a great time. And it was... It was staffed by all kinds of people who were sort of luminaries. Um, already or later to become? <clears throat> well, some were already, but people, people like um, Victor Perkins, uh, Peter Wallen, Alan Lovell, Colin MacArthur, um, quite a, a variety of uh, people who yeah. were kind of distinguished in their way in the f- film studies. Um, and uh, so I got enthused by this and then I got to be good friends with Colin MacArthur and he lived, by this time I'd moved away from university actually, come to think of it, and I was living in Stratford-on-Avon because my wife was working in the th- my then wife was working in the theatre. Um, and uh, Colin uh, worked in Coventry which is quite close by. So I used to go over and see him most weeks and we would have an Indian meal while we discussed movies and related topics. Right. And he would tell me about things I, I could read and films I, I ought to see and stuff. And he kind of took me under his wing rather and really helped me a lot and put me on the right path, you know. And Colin was writing film reviews at that time? Uh, yes, um, he, he had a job for a while, a job which I later inherited, which was film critic for Tribune, mm-hmm. which was a kind of left-wing Labour weekly newspaper. George Orwell had written for it. Well, I wouldn't dare to put myself in such a gust kind <laughs> But anyway, so they had a weekly film column, which I used to, or a fortnightly film column, I don't know, yeah. so I used to review films for them. And um, the, the, the trade didn't really consider me a proper film critics, so I didn't always get the list of what was screening and I wasn't always made to feel welcome when I turned up at the, the press shows. But you didn't and have to fork over your two and six? No. 
And I remember once I was at a Tribune party and there was a left-wing Labour MP called Brian Sedgmore, who was a bit of a stirrer and troublemaker. And I was telling him this, and he said, this is disgraceful, he said, I shall ask a question in the house. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, actually, but... Uh, it, was, it sounds uh, like a thing to say at a Christmas party. Yeah, yeah. This is disgraceful. Yeah. I shall hear no more of it. Or others will hear much more of it, yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, all these guys were outside university circles, pretty much. There were no film universities. Yeah. There were no film people in universities. There were yeah. no programmes leading to, to a degree in film studies. There were some polytechnics, which were sort of quasi universities or second class universities as they were regarded by the bona fide universities and um, who did uh, degrees in communications and things like that which was media of one sort or another and yeah. might have a film component but might not and so um, the, the, really the, <clears throat> the BFI education department at that time was the centre of uh, yeah such intellectual activity as, the, as there was around the cinema. And a little and bit the schools. Schools might have been doing more than universities. Well, in some ways they were, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, for a time the BFI education was run by a guy called Paddy Wannell, who was, uh, he's one of the, uh, he's not exactly unsung, but he's one of the great heroes, I think, of film studies. Mm. Um, mm. He was very inspirational. He picked really good people to work with him. He, he facilitated things for them. He inspired them. And um, he, was a, he was an all-round, um, um, you know, a great guy, really, to um, have at that time. And his famous book with Stuart Hall, The Popular Arts, the yes. sort of Leverside uplift version yeah. Yeah. of what became British Cultural Studies was just reissued, wasn't it? I went to a launch party yeah. uh, for it, yes, yeah. it was yeah. fun. And he then went on to teach at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. He did, right? yes, yeah. where I stayed yeah. with him once, because there was a SCS, as it was the, in right. those days, um, annual conference right. uh, at Northwestern. I think it was at Northwestern, it wasn't at University of Chicago, I'm pretty sure it's Northwestern. Northwestern. And uh, at that time I was teaching in Iowa, <clears throat> and so I thought, well, I'm going to that. And um, Paddy said, well, come and stay with me. So I went there with my wife, who was heavily pregnant at the time. We, we drove to, uh, from Iowa to Paddy's place. It was like six um, or eight hours. Probably. Yeah, we spent a wonderful time, several days, um, going to the conference, watching movies, but coming back to Paddy's every evening and playing darts. Playing darts, he yeah. Was a bit, he actually wrote a book about darts. He's a, he was a real yeah, aficionado. Yeah, okay. And drinking vodka and tonic. Yes, well, so... <laughs> That's enough of that. So. <laughs> I know, I'd rather put the car wash on that I, with my... The, yes, well, didn't I? So, Paddy, at that, uh, back in the early 70s, late yeah, 60s, yeah. is running the education department yeah. at the British Film Institute. Yeah, yeah. And you are writing, you've taken over Colin MacArthur's tribute. Well, a bit later, our <coughs> excuse me, Paddy had left the BFI. There'd been a sort of bust up and a disagreement over what the function of BFI education was. And according to the governors of the BFI, 
the function was not to act as a kind of university department of film studies. It was to help school teachers and such. Um, so he left with one or two other people. Jim Kitts has uh, left about that time. Must have been the first, the only ever bust up at the BFI in your time associated with film culture in this country. Yeah. Not quite. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, uh, where was I? Yeah, so, so, so Paddy leaves. Yes. And then um, there's a guy called Douglas Lowndes who takes over and who's has many virtues, Douglas, um, but he wasn't quite um, as interested in film studies as Paddy was. Right. But the, I was then teaching in a, well, a place called Isleworth Polytechnic, which wasn't actually a polytechnic at all. It was really just a technical college where people would come to study technical subjects and get qualifications, um, O-levels and A-levels, which is the exams you need to go to university and, and so on. Um, but I had a su <coughs> succession of jobs in places like that, and each one, I was teaching English, basically, but I was doing less English and a bit more film studies, and mm -hmm. I kept easing it into the mm -hmm. programme. And at Isleworth, I ended up teaching an A-level programme in film studies. I was one of the first people to participate Absolutely. in that. And the A-level <coughs> is, as Ed implied a moment ago, the last year of high school, when it is assumed that your results will funnel you into university if you're yeah. from a middle class. Yeah, yeah. Um, what university they intended to go to with an A-level in film studies, I'm not quite sure, <laughs> to be honest, because there wasn't anywhere they could do a degree in it yeah. still at that time. But eventually, um, uh, there was a job opening at the BFI Education Department, and um, when would this have been? Roughly? 1974, 1974, I joined the BFI, yes. Yeah. And uh, my job was twofold. One was to run a publishing program, which they had a sort of incipient publishing program, but it hadn't really taken off quite. And I was to sort of beef that up and get become more ambitious. Yeah. And the second part, um, it was. It had been decided, I think Paddy was involved in this, that if we wanted to advance film studies yeah. to a more prominent place in academic life and cultural life generally, it needed to have a much firmer basis of uh, scholarly work, theory, history, whatever, because too much of what passed for film culture was just... Uh, critics writing on, you know, what they liked and what they didn't like, and we thought that wasn't much to base a university course on. So <clears throat> my job was to run a programme seeding posts in universities, mm -hmm. and uh, the BFI offered to um, pay the salary of a university teacher, assistant professor mm. level, for three years, on the understanding that at the end of the three years, mm -hmm. the university would make the job permanent and take over the payment of the salary. So the ambition was every year to appoint somebody um, to one of those posts. So that was how film studies really got going in the UK. Um, places like University of Warwick, University of East Anglia, um, um, 
Kent was Kent? Yes, Kent, yes. Um, they all had appointments um, funded by the BFI in the first instance. And you sat on those search committees, I think. I basically liaised with the university about the you know, details of the programme. And then I sat in, well, I looked at the, the applications and then I sat in on, I was part of the interviewing panel for mm. the job. So I was, because I was the only one really who knew anything about film studies, mm. they being professors of Greek or German or whatever they were, who, who were interested but didn't, you know, claim to have any kind of professional knowledge. So I had quite a bit of influence really on who was appointed. So uh, various people were appointed, such as um, well, Robin Wood was an early one, Richard Dyer, Charles Barr, Thomas Alsace, uh, um, various people like that who um, got film studies going in their mm. respective mm. universities. And so it was a fairly successful programme and probably around, f I should think we must have done somewhere between eight and ten um, uh, funded posts in the time I was running that programme. Um, so. And on the publishing front, what's happening? Well, they had a little series called, um, um, well, they were, they were small books about television because we were trying to get television taken up mm -hmm. as, a, as a subject. And um, so that was up and running and I um, beefed up that a bit which is how I came to edit a book called Football on Television, which was derided in certain quarters at the time as if, how could anyone serious write a book called Football on Television? But what we wanted to do, um, Colin MacArthur and myself and Charles Barr and Tom Ryle, one or two other people, we wanted to see if uh, kind of uh, what was developing in film studies uh, the kind of new theoretical approaches could have any relevance when applied to the analysis of sport on TV. So, you know, what was the language of uh, sport? How did, how did, were the rules, the so-called, you know, of classical cinema, were they followed uh, in these broadcasts? And actually, surprise, surprise, by and large, they were. You know, you didn't, there was no crossing the line, for yeah. example. Um, and you were studying the, the World Cup of men's football. Yes. And I use, we are using the word football to describe it as it is known by 96% of the world's population. Yes. Shall we say? And the, the, it, 1974 was a World Cup year, yeah. and that's what we studied. And it took place in Germany. I think it was called the Weltschmerz or something. I, didn't, I don't speak German, so I don't know. Anyway, and we recorded a lot of programmes and mm. subjected them to detailed... Analysis. I remember it was just when um, video recording was coming in. We had these huge, great Philips machines that miraculously could, you know, tape a TV program, and then you could watch it over again. I recall that you also subjected these poor bastards who were doing some commentary and so on to a certain ideological analysis as well. well so we were told because this is the day, a height of the Cold War. We're yeah. told that the East German, you know, I think we were being told that the East Germans played, you know, in a mechanical way. Well, I'm not sure there was a lot of that, but there certainly was quite a lot of discussion of nationalism, particularly nationalism within the UK, because they, they had these panels of commentators. 
um, some of whom were Scottish. But the England team was playing, but the Scottish team was not in the finals, so... Other way around. So what? England didn't qualify for the finals. 74, remember? Oh, well, I've... My memory is playing tricks. 73 is when the, you know, Poland beats England and qualifies. England doesn't qualify and Scotland does. You're right, you're right. You're right. Sorry, anyway. Um, well, anyway, so it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But the point is, it's... Uh, uh, these colour commentators or pundits, ex-players, suddenly yeah. become big stars Absolutely. in television commentary yeah, yeah, when... Yeah. And I guess this had perhaps started in the previous Men's World Cup, 1970. But before that, it had really just been the play-by-play -play commentary of, yeah, of the yeah. action. And suddenly, you got all this added off material. screen. Yeah. Suddenly, these guys yeah. were on the screen yeah. making jokes and yeah. Sort of male banter. Yeah, and absolutely. A, a, a yeah, very absolutely. entertaining kind. Yeah, yeah, it was in those days. Was it I, Derek Dugan, people like that? Yeah. Quite funny. Um, Brian Clough, Malcolm Allison. Brian Clough, Malcolm Allison. Brian, yeah. Malcolm Allison and his fedora and yes. cigar and champagne. Yeah. And so on. So, yes, it's interesting that you mentioned that this project drew a certain amount of derision. So there was a hierarchy of aesthetic taste that yeah. would have put sport and television far below cinema. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But one of the things that was probably already emerging was a tension that the BFI has probably had to deal with throughout its history, which is, is it a film institute about the British film industry, or is it a film institute for the British people? Yeah. Yes? I remember we had one of our period, periodic investigations by the men from the ministry, because the BFI <laughs> was funded by the government, so we were under the Ministry of whatever it was at the time, education, I think. And we had these civil servants came in to sort of do an audit of what we did and why we did it. And I remember this guy coming into my office and saying, well, tell me about your publishing program. And he stopped me after a while. He said, but why are you publishing books about Chinese cinema and French mm. cinema? Mm. What's that got to do with Britain? <laughs> and so I tried to explain that film was a world culture and that you couldn't really confine yourself to an interest purely in British cinema. What, what do they know of cinema who only British cinema know? Well, apart from anything else, they wouldn't wake up very often. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so that was the kind of attitude that some people yeah, had, right. that we shouldn't spend money on this. And, um, but we were always very internationally minded. As anybody yep. who's interested in film has to be, you can't just bury yourself in your own culture. I think. Now, you, you mentioned theory, and we're talking the period 74, 75. This is also when screen publishes in the same issue a long translation of Christian Metz's imaginary signifier essay yeah. and Laura's visual pleasure and narrative cinema. Yes, yes. Are you involved with Screen at this time, and is Screen involved with the BFI? Well, as it happens, in that issue in 1975, which had a grey cover, I always remember, I had an essay as well. Oh, pardon me for living, Mrs. Called Notes on Colombian Cinema, which I have to say um, has been quite often anthologized. anthologized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Columbia Pictures, about Columbia yeah. Pictures, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Um, 
Yes, I mean, what I was interested in at that time particularly was the kind of economic basis of the mm. system, as it were. And, um, you know, we were one of the people we were influenced by at that time was Louis Althusser, as a kind of um, newer version of traditional Marxism, because uh, at the end of the day, we're all basically Marxists of one sort or another, though yeah. we didn't go around calling ourselves that. Um, very often um, and we were interested particularly in Althusser's notion of kind of institutions and how the economic is always determining determining, but in the last instance in the very very lonely hour of the yeah, last instance exactly <laughs> so um, that means that all kinds of other influences could be yeah. present in yeah. culture yeah which are not directly the cause of economics, although very indirectly they might be. And so I was interested in Hollywood as a, a system which was obviously very dependent on economic realities. Mm. It, uh, whether it existed only to make money, it certainly wouldn't exist if it didn't make money. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that put certain pressures on, on people. And I was interested in doing some doing a quick history of Columbia Pictures as one of the smaller studios which uh, you could sort of follow how it, it was partly concerned with um, how um, Hollywood reflected the New Deal and what were the kind of determining factors of that and I discovered that Columbia was um, bankrolled um, by this banker whose name now escapes both of us. Giannini. Uh -huh. It was a guy called Giannini who was the head of the Bank of America. And um, he lent Colombia a lot of money. And he was, insofar as bankers could ever be, um, kind of leftward leaning. And he was a great believer in Roosevelt's New Deal program. And um, and so that, I just wanted to know, you know, did that have an influence on the actual pictures that were made yeah. and so on? And, well, it did and it didn't, really, was the answer. But it was an interesting question to pursue, yeah. Now, two questions about that essay and your other work before we get back to screen. Uh, nowadays, it wouldn't be so difficult to write a history of a Hollywood studio from Britain, mm. but it would have been very difficult in those days. It was enormously difficult because the the archives weren't open mm. basically in those days, and even if they were open, they were in America, which was not easy for me to get to. Um, um, so, I mean, I didn't go to America till mm. 1977, the first time I set foot there. Um, so it was difficult. Fortunately, I was working in a building that had a really good film library. The BFI had an excellent library with runs of trade journals and all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff, which mm -hmm. was uh, like gold dust, really. So I spent a lot of time kind of moonlighting from my desk job in the BFI library, rooting around. Rooting around. Well, that leads to my next question. And it again falls under the Althusserian category in this time of conditions of possibility. You're, in a sense, a civil servant. 
yes. with our other BFI people. Yes. You're working 10 to 6, more or less, 5 days a yes. week. You have to be there. Yes. You're running a publishing program and stimulating the emergence of film studies yeah. in universities. Yeah. How do you find the time? Uh, and also from 1977, I had a small child and um, my wife was working a lot, so I, you know, a certain amount of childcare fell on me whether I wanted it or not. Um, I, I did my best in that respect, though probably should have done more. You always look back and think I could have done more maybe, but anyway, she's turned out okay. Indeed so, she has. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult. All I can say is that I was, I had a lot of energy in those days, I guess, and yeah. I was really interested in what I was doing, you know, which is always a big motivator. I really wanted to know these things. I wanted to research these things. So I would steal time from the office, but also I would come home and have something to eat and put the, my daughter to bed, maybe, and then got to my study and spent a couple of hours reading, writing, whatever. Um, I couldn't do it now, but I don't have to do it now. It staggers me how little academics produce, <laughs> given that they have somewhat easier conditions of possibility. Yeah, by yeah. well, all, you know, I was at the BFI 22 years, working office hours all the time, and um, I managed to crank out a few things, um, but... Uh, yeah, if I had a, an academic job, maybe I could have produced more, but there we are. I mean, I like my job very much, so yeah, I don't have any regrets, really. But. Well, this is a, a, a... Let's go back to screen for in a moment. Yeah. Let's stick with this topic for, for now. In a sense, this is about people who are film intellectuals. Yeah. And it's a tough term to use. British people don't like being called intellectuals. But you were not academics, which British people no. don't mind being called. You yeah. were film intellectuals. You've used the term we a bit, I've used the term you. Who is the we? Who are the you at this time? Well, 74, 75, 70. There was a, a circle of people in the BFI education department. Mm. Um, but uh, people like Peter Wallen had left um, to take up a job in a university. Um, um, and so there weren't many of the original crowd left. Colin MacArthur was still around, but there right. were many of the people who run the programme on the Western in 1967. Right. They weren't around the BFI, but there were obviously other people. I mean, I had good colleagues, Jim Hillier, uh, Jim Cook, and uh, various other people. Jim um, Hillier will be known as, in part, for having edited the sort of greatest hits of Cahiers du Cinema. Yeah. Jim Cook did a... An, an important work on alcohol and cinema. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were, and, you know, I knew um, the people who'd been at the BFI and the people who were appointed to the university jobs, so yeah. I used to see them. And we used to run programmes. I mean, the editor of Screen at that time, Sam Rohde, uh, started a seminar program and uh, I wrote a paper on authorship um, for that program which Screen eventually published and um, uh, 
there were so there were people around, people like Laura Mulvey, uh, for example, who mm. were around and contributed to those things. And, yes. Um, when eventually Sam left under a cloud, it has to be said, because well, I'm not saying there was any wrongdoing. There was a falling out, uh, let's say. And um, he left, and then uh, Ben Brewster was appointed uh, editor. Of Screen. Oh, yes. And Screen was being funded in part by the BFI? Yes, it was. There, there was an organisation called the Society for Education in Film and Television, which is basically an organisation for school teachers, people teaching film and, to some extent, media in high schools. Mm. And um, it... It had a journal called Scream, which had sort of trundled along for a number of years without kind of uh, setting the world on fire. But then it, it got taken over and um, kind of beefed up intellectually considerably and uh, started publishing stuff about French, uh, not just French film theory, but French intellectual theory generally, um, mm -hmm. Barthes and, and mm -hmm. Bart, I mean, and, and people like that. Um, so, uh, the idea was, I think, which goes back to Paddy Wanell, which was that film will never become uh, a respectable academic subject, that's assuming you want it to be a respectable <laughs> academic subject, unless it has a body of work which can be taught, and that has to have intellectual uh, substance, you know, and so we didn't consider there was such a body of work, therefore we had to set out to produce it. To produce it. And this is not necessarily meeting the needs of your common or garden high school it teacher. Didn't. Really I mean, there were very involved. interesting people teaching in schools who were well up to dealing with all this mm. stuff. I remember there was a guy called Jimmy Greeley, who was a very bright guy and who taught in high school, but you know, used to hoover up all this kind of uh, uh, intellectual stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, but there was a feeling that, uh, on the whole, yes, this stuff was perhaps not being appreciated by the membership of the society. And that's why, eventually, um, Sam Rowley thought we ought to have a separate journal for the society. So Screen Education Notes was um, started with me as one of the uh, co-editors, and that soon became sc just Screen Education. <clears throat> which then became, which started publishing, seems to be the way of things, fairly intellectual articles about uh, French theories of education and such, which, again, you know, did it help the guy who's just about to go in his, into his class and try and teach about film noir or something? Well, I don't know. I think it did, but it, uh, there was always that debate on mm. so we should be more practical. So we... We, we tried to be more practical. Um, the, be the first book I ever wrote, when I first got to the BFI, they said, what we hear from teachers all the time, because BFI education was very closely concerned with teachers. They provided materials and advice and ran programmes and so on. They said to me, the people in my department, teachers are telling us that there's a, there's a section in the exam of O-level about the film industry and they are saying but well, we don't have any materials to teach on that so they said to me what we need is a book <clears throat> about film making how films get made 
in the contemporary film industry. So uh, would you like to write it? And I said, well, wh you know, where do I start? And they said, well, you, you need to find a film that's coming into production um, shortly that will give you access. So I can't remember anymore how we settled on this particular film. There must have been some connection, but... As with all ethnographies of film and television programmes, it wasn't a success. The ethnography was a success. <laughs> the patient died. It's a Freddie Francis horror. Yes. It was a film directed by the, the late, great Freddie Francis. Great, great. Great cameraman. Great cinematographer. Yeah. Great um, and it was produced by his son, Kevin Francis. Um, who had a sort of background in the film industry, but was a curious kind of guy. He also owned a fish and chip shop and various <laughs> other things. Um, and he was a bit of a... Well, I've got to be careful what I say, really. But anyway, he was a, a kind of entrepreneur, shall we say. A chancer. And um, so Fred... Um, so I went out to Pinewood Studios where the film was going to be made and met Kevin and said what I wanted and he said well you know, I guess you can't do any harm yeah you can hang around <laughs> little did he know <laughs> and so the, the film had a six week um, shooting schedule and I was out there most days watching what was happening taking a lot of notes and interviewing people the star was Peter Cushing and I interviewed him and various other people um, so behind for people the who, camera and in front yeah for people who know Peter Cushing from Star Wars. Yeah. He is the sort of sine qua non, along with Christopher Lee, of British horror cinema of the 60s and 70s, yes. amongst yeah. other things. That, yeah, 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 absolutely. That was what he made his yeah. name in, really. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> so I observed this film, and um, then I got involved in the post-production stage. There was a... The editor was a very interesting, very nice man called Henry Richardson, and he gave me a lot of help. And uh, amongst other things, we eventually put together a little film which started off with um, just some takes of a particular scene in no particular in no order. Um, mm. And um, show, he showed <coughs> how that was built up into a scene, how it was edited. So we, we saw a version where it was a rough cut and then a fine cut and then with music added and then with colour because um, it was a colour movie but the the um, the uh, what they're working with is black and white uh, in the editing room so um, <clears throat> so then I wrote the book and it was called Making Legend of the Werewolf that was the title of the film yeah. and um, there we go so this is an interesting moment uh, not only for the publication of that excellent book, but also because this is a time when there's an empirical element emergent, yeah. as evidenced in your notes towards a history of Columbia Studios, as evidenced in your participant observation account of the making of the Freddie Francis horror flick, and there is the Marxism you've mentioned, but there's also the P word coming onto the scene, yes. psychoanalysis, yeah. Yeah. with which you had an interesting relationship at the time. <laughs> well, I've always been a great admirer of Freud. I've read a lot of Freud, and he's really good reading. I mean, he, 
he writes well, his books are entertaining, interesting, you know, they're well worth reading for anybody, I think. Um, but uh, Screen, having sort of, first of all, I mean, first of all, the, the interest was in um, structuralism, which came to us through the writings of Claude Lévi-Strauss and people like that. Um, I should say that what, what, one of the things that happened in those early days, I'm talking about the mid-70s, was that many of us felt we didn't know enough about this stuff, you know, um, about structuralism, about um, theories of film in one, of one sort or another, and that what we needed to do was to um, devise for ourselves a programme, an educational programme, so we got one or two people who knew a lot about this stuff, like Ben Brewster, to put together a series of readings. And we would, those of us who were interested, would meet every week and, and discuss what we had read. So we read uh, Russian formalism, Viktor Shlovsky, and we read um, structural linguistics, people like Roman Jakobson and so on. And um, we read Althusser and we read, well, you know, the, Bart and, and this and that. Um, so that was how I acquired such knowledge as I had of these <coughs> theories. Um, and sorry, who would have been in this group apart from you and Ben? It's hard to remember now, to be honest. Yeah, sure. Yeah. In any event. Yeah, in any event. Um, yeah, so. Um, oh, I've lost the thread now. So you're doing this reading in structuralism, yeah, semiotic yeah. psychoanalysis. Yes, and then um, Screen, having moved th through structuralism and so forth, uh, got hold of psychoanalysis, but not strictly Freudian psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis as refracted through the work of Lacan and other French uh, theorists. And at that point, I decided I wasn't all that interested. I think I've always been more interested in the, the social than the psychological, if you want to put it that way. I mean, I don't discount theories of, um, of uh, the theories of um, psychoanalysis, and I certainly don't discount Freud, but I have always been more interested in the kind of sociological, economic um, side of things not exclusively interested in that, but that's always kind of appealed to me. Um, and I found that the psychoanalytic stuff was just getting too far away from what I really wanted to know about and deal with. And um, there were others on the screen. I was on the screen board um, at that time. There were others who sort of felt the same way. Things just weren't going the, right, the way they really wanted them mm -hmm. to go, so there were a lot of arguments, and eventually some of us resigned from the board saying, well, okay, fine, you go your way, we'll go ours, you know. Um, and published your letter of resignation. Yes, I haven't looked at that in a long time. I probably wouldn't care for it much now if I did. I don't know what I think. I'm not sure whether it was the best thing to have done or whether it would have been better to stay on the board and try and kind of argue from within, but there we are, you know, we got, we got to the point where we had enough of that. 
because screen boards used to happen. The board of screen used to meet every Monday night, every sorry, every three weeks, mm. and then screen education had its own board, and that used to meet every Monday night, a different Monday night, and I was on the board of that, and then. Uh, SEFT, the society, used to have a committee and that met, ev met every Monday night and I was on that as well. So for a time, my Monday nights were entirely taken up with these meetings which got quite heated and the vituperative at times. There were arguments which really just, you know, went on and on and on and people fell out with each other and so on. And I, I think I'd just about had enough of it by that time. It was quite wearing and draining, you know. Um, and the revolution hadn't quite occurred. <coughs> what revolution? Well, much of this was done in the name of the oh, revolutionary, well, the revolutionary politics. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I suppose if you'd asked any of us, what is it ultimately that you're trying to achieve? We would say, well, ultimately we're trying to achieve a revolution in the study of cinema, but that would be part of a wider revolution in society generally. Um, but, you know, I don't think any of us uh, believed in a simple way that, uh, you know, trying to intellectualise film studies was going to lead to a, a change in the ownership of the means of production. <laughs> well, so. our, our late friend Mama Alvarado once told me in discussion about some of these vituperative meetings that you've glossed over that he found incredibly exciting and stimulating. Yeah. There was something there. Yeah. No, it was, it was. It's just after a while. <laughs> Unless you have a real taste for this kind of thing, you know, mm. it grinds you down, I think. And um, these were debates about things like gender, class, well, Something there were else. debates about <coughs> what we'd read and what we ought to be reading and uh, there were debates about what we should publish, you know. So people would submit articles and we'd have fights about whether they were published or whether this was the sort of thing we wanted or not, you know. So, mm. so um, And jumping ahead, I think you're the only person to resign twice from the board of screen. Yeah, that's true. The second time... I wasn't on the board for very long, but after uh, Sam Rohde left and then uh, uh, and, and Ben Brewster left, um, it, uh, it it had a different kind of management, and uh, Mandy Merck became the editor, and um, she sort of took things in a different way, I suppose, in a different direction. And I thought, well, uh, I don't think I'm the person to be on this board anymore, really. So I I resigned again. Um, but not in a huff or anything. Mm. I just thought, mm. well, if this is what they want, they should... They should go in. I don't think I can make a contribution. That's right, right. You know. So let's get back to the late 70s, and suddenly the University of Iowa invites you yeah. to come and be a visiting professor. Yes. In 77? Yeah, out of the blues, was. Yeah, yeah. So obviously... Somebody over there, I guess Dudley Andrew, had read my stuff, and they they were always uh, flying in people to teach a semester or two, um, just as a way of kind of refreshing the department and so on. 
Um, so they, they picked on me. So it's my first visit to the States. And, and that was the first a... sight of the States was a cold January evening getting off the plane at Cedar Rapids Airport. Bloody hell. Somebody had told me it will be cold when you get there, but I had no idea what cold was until I got to Iowa in the middle of winter. And you stumbled upon not only snow and ice, but an astonishing cohort of doctoral students in that seminar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there were um, people like uh, Jane Fewer and Bobby Allen, um, um, Phil Rosen and uh, Marianne Doan and people like that. Yeah. Um, who are very, very bright and doing good work, you know. Um, so it was quite exciting to be there and um, Dudley was very kind to me and he's a very interesting guy to talk to and um, Rick Altman was the other main guy there I suppose doing film studies um, so they became good friends and I went back to Iowa several times actually um, over the course of the next 10 years or so um, to do shorter stints as visiting scholar, whatever, yeah. What did you think of US film studies then, as opposed to what you were experiencing here? Well, I did think that, you know, it was largely missing the political side that we were trying to develop. I mean, it, it, was, it was academic, I think, and it didn't really seem to make a lot of effort to sort of connect up with anything except, you know, its own little world. Now, that sounds like a rather sweeping criticism, but, um, uh, you know, I don't think I came across anybody whose uh, sort of <clears throat> political commitment matched my own, not that I was in any parties or anything, mm, but, mm, uh, mm. you know, it, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't part of their culture, really. Um, uh, these days, I think it would be different, um, but uh, in those days, uh, it, it, you know, the, they were doing really good work, really interesting work, but uh, they weren't trying to intervene in the public sphere in any way, really. Whereas one of the things you guys were doing, apart from being theory heads, <laughs> was not only this business of seed funding university positions and schooling school teachers but also making policy proposals yeah you know about broadcasting in britain yeah. about film policy and so <clears> on <throat> most of you thought that was important too yeah um <clears throat> i mean it was hard to sort of get to grips with the british cinema which often hardly seemed to exist really um but broadcasting was a very important element within British culture um, and had been since the 1920s. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And there were, at that time, uh, very serious debates about what the future of broadcasting should be because uh, all sorts of possibilities were opening up new channels, for mm. example. Mm. What should this... There was a new channel coming on stream called Channel 4, uh, but the arguments have been around what is Channel 4 for, who is it for, how should it work structurally, how should the 
it work economically. Uh, just, you know, we have a chance to try something new here. Mm. And the idea originally around Channel 4 was that um, it was going to produce a new kind of television in a new way. And it really worked very hard, I think, um, under Jeremy Isaacs um, to achieve that. Um, you wouldn't recognise You wouldn't know it now. No, you mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't. When you come back from Iowa, that's around the time that you and Manuel do another ethnography. Yes. Well, um, actually, that started just before I went to Iowa. Um, yeah, the people in the department at the BFI said, OK, you did a book about making a movie. Now do a book about making television. Uh, a book about a drama series, a popular drama series. You know, show how it gets made and what the constraints are, uh, what their intentions are, this, that and the other. Talk to them all, watch what they do, you know. And so uh, we went to Thames Television, which by now is run by Jeremy... Uh, no, wait a minute, is this, this is after Channel 4 started, yeah. No, this was, Channel 4 starts 82, doesn't Yes, it? this was before... Before Channel 4, yes, right, yeah. of course. Yeah. Uh, the director of programmes was a man called Jeremy Isaacs, who was a very forward-looking, very kind of liberal sort of guy. Mm. And uh, we thought that he might be sympathetic to what we wanted to do, so I went to him and described it. He said, well, we have got a <coughs> series coming on. Uh, well, it's, you know, in the planning stage. And it's called um, Hazel, and it's a series about a private eye. So it's meant to be very popular, and uh, we have high hopes for it. And I said, that sounds perfect and ideal, you know. Um, but then I got this offer from Iowa, uh, sort of right in the middle of it. And so the, there was a period of uh, months, really, when I wasn't able to carry on with the project while all sorts of things were going on. And so I realised I need somebody, somebody else to help me. <clears throat> so I, um, by that time, got friendly with Manuel Alvarado, and uh, he was the um, editor of Screen Education, and the, what was he the editor? Anyway, he was the secretary of the Society for Education in Film and Television, which was a, a full-time job, and um, they agreed to let him be seconded onto this project I had, so... Uh, he and I started off going down there together, and then I left, you know, he carried the ball while I was away and went, went down and interviewed people, watched what was going on and so on. And it was an interesting series. It was based on some novels which had been written by a Scottish novelist called um, um, Gordon Williams, who wrote the book that Peckinpah's Straw Dogs was based on. Though you never mentioned the name Sam Peckinpah to him because Gordon would fly into a rage and start swearing about what that man had done to his book. <laughs> Not the only person to react in such a way to the sound of no. the word Peckinpah. Um, but there was another author involved. There was another author involved. Hell's Hell. Who was a guy called Terry Venables, <laughs> who was very famous because he, I think he still might be the only person who ever represented the... England at football, um, our national sport, at schoolboy level, 
at youth level, at under-21 level, and at full international. And um, by this time, he'd retired from playing and he was a, a manager. He was senior earlier. Yes, he's manager at Crystal, <laughs> Crystal Palace. <clears throat> and um, he, there's obviously a bit of scepticism about whether, you know, ignorant illustrate footballers, is it, surely he doesn't actually write the books. But Terry was a, is a very bright man, very gifted, and he did write the books. I asked him about it, and Gordon said, well, I write a chapter, and then he picks it up and reads it, and he writes a chapter, and then I, that's how it goes on. Um, so, you know, he really did write um, his share of the books. And he had an ear for London he working did, class... because Hayes always a sort of cockney, basically. Yeah. And um, Gordon was <coughs> Scottish, but Terry was sort of... I think he was actually East End, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, knew all the kind of jargon and stuff mm. and the mm. way these mm. people behaved, you know. And... Um, so he he was uh, kind of invaluable from that from that point of view. So uh, we I remember we went to, Manuel and I both went down to interview him in his office at Crystal Palace Football Club, and the phone kept going and he said, "Excuse me, lads, I've got to take this call," and it was some other manager on the phone about wanting to buy one of his players or something like that. And, but we weren't supposed to listen to any of that because it was all secret. Um, but anyway, he, he was very helpful and very, very kind. And um, they both came to our launch party when the book was launched, and everybody had a great time at that party, I remember. So that was that, was that yeah. It's a great book, and one of the things that I find a little sad about television studies in the Anglo world is that not enough attention is paid to work that was being done in the late 70s and early 80s, these production ethnographies. Mm -hmm. I think of Albert Moran's work, uh, John Tullock's work. Philip Pettit did a book. Yep. Yeah. Philip Pettit, Mamel Alvarado, Roger Silverstone. Yeah. Uh, and then a little later, Barry Dornfeld in the US. People who do what I would call the thinnest imaginable ethnographies are now allegedly... In providing a new way of understanding the cultural studies of industry. In any event, that's my little spiel. It's a terrific book, a wonderful book. Well, it was, I had the most fun writing that of anything I've Did ever you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We used to go down to the studios and when they finished for the day, we'd all pile into the studio bar and Gordon would tell a lot of funny stories and so would tell. That's great. He's dead now, sadly. Gordon, Gordon Williams. Died last year. <clears throat> but Terry's... I don't know, you don't hear anything about him now. But I guess he's well, the other thing he did that you didn't mention was he became the England manager. That may be the other he thing. He did, yes. Makes well, him stand out. He that, played yes. for the country at yes. all these levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then managed it, and yeah. very successfully, yeah. one might add, 30 years ago. Yeah. But he there are... Forced out... Yes, there are a few skeletal elements in the closet that we won't discuss. No. <laughs> Here and now. And then he went to Spain. Hence being known as El Tel. Yeah, Tel being sort of cockney for Terry. Terry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. El Tel. So, 
That happened in 78 yeah. and 79, and yeah. it wasn't that successful. They didn't do a second season. They did do a second did, season. Oh, they did, they? Yes, I'm sorry. but yeah. it didn't attract much it attention. I, I only saw the first season, and I loved it. I liked Nick Ball. Yeah, he was the lead actor who played Hayes. Well, Manuel and I always had an argument about him. He used Manuel used to say he's no good, Nick Paul. You know, he should get somebody well, else. I liked him, but I I thought he was okay. Yeah. But he he didn't really become a major actor somehow. He did. He I've heard him do some voiceovers since. I've yeah, and he's him. done voiceovers for commercials and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, but no, I don't know what. Happened and he was quite a career. pretty boy too, yeah, wasn't he? He was yeah. quite good looking. Yeah, yeah. In any event, I enjoyed it very much. Um, after the Hazel book, you've suddenly done two books. You've been doing doctoral teaching in Iowa. And like all, virtually everybody we're discussing from Britain, you're a person with a BA. Yes. This is the norm. Yes. That you're not working in universities, you don't have PhDs. No. But you've worked out the importance of theoretical questions and how to apply them. You've worked out how to do this empirical research yeah. and I guess that this is what makes the BFI from that period and later stand out for me when there are people we've mentioned and others we haven't mentioned like Paul Willeman yeah. and uh, Colin McCabe yeah. uh, later on Jim Pines Stephen Heath Stephen um, Heath see, none of those people as far as I'm aware Ben Brewster Sam Rody any of those people had any qualifications in film, in film at all. Maybe Heath did a PhD in French or something. Yeah, well, they, they obviously were not without qualifications, but they weren't in film. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think Ben did his original degree in geology. Think, so. so the question then becomes, Geoffrey Noel Smith would be another. Yes. <laughs> Can we say that since the institutionalisation of film studies in which you played such a part... Is it all that much better? Or in fact, do well, we have no cohort, anything like the group of people, well, we mentioned Laura earlier, Manuel, yeah. that we've been touching? Well, I won't say anything detrimental about today's um, crop of uh, film studies, academics and so on, because to be honest, I, I can't say I've kept in touch with the field, mm -hmm. really. But <clears throat> there was... A continuous debate uh, amongst ourselves about, you know, some people had advocated strongly that we needed to build up a body of knowledge in film studies in order for it to get entrenched in the university structure. You know, they won't make appointments unless they're convinced that these people have knowledge about something that is relevant to universities. Um, but there was always the debate about whether in the course of helping film studies to become institutionalised, it would lose its political cutting edge. Because we were all working outside the university system. We were not constrained by what courses we taught or what the head of the department said or anything like that. We could do exactly what we wanted. Mm. And uh, we did. And... Um, you know, there was an ongoing debate about whether it had lost its edge by becoming incorporated. And there were, there were some people who even said that it was the fault of America, you know, that once you get in with those guys, 
you're not going to be able to keep it political anymore. You know, I'm not sure that, that was necessarily. <coughs> I think it's become true. very apolitical here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And just about careerism, and the BFI is a fine example. Well, the BFI is, let's say, not what it used to be. No? Yeah. But yeah. They're more strongly than that. There's still some good guys in it. I've got some good friends still there, but um, I think everybody would agree that it's it's sort of it's not what it used to be. It didn't regenerate after the mid '90s mm. when you all left. Yeah. So let's get back to the to the '80s. I know we've been going for almost an hour, so we shouldn't go for too much longer. Uh, you get more and more involved in the publishing side of things, is yeah, that right? In yeah. addition to your own publishing, yeah. you get more involved yeah. as a publisher. Yes. We start co-publishing series with uh, bigger publishers uh, who specialised in academic publishing, Routledge, Macmillan, people like that, university presses. We beefed up our American distribution um, started publishing, co-publishing books with American university presses, um, and um, the, the the thing that guided my work was always, you know, uh, is this worth publishing? Is this what people ought to know about? Is it what they want to know about? Mm. Um, so I always had a, you know, I would never publish a book just because I thought, well. This might entertain people or something like that. And I would never publish a book where if I thought, oh, this will easily find another publisher. Because I thought, it's not our job to publish popular books for the popular market, really. Um, we, we, you know, we were a subsidised operation, but the subsidy was basically intended for a purpose, which was to, yeah. I guess, raise the level of uh, publishing on cinema and... Uh, increase the, the volume. Um, but um, as part of that programme and eventually head of that programme, what we had to do is to achieve a kind of balancing act between what we thought ought to be published and um, what we could sell because um, being a, a subsidised operation, we weren't expected to make money, but we were expected to lose it as slowly as possible. And so we had, to some extent, to balance books that I knew would only sell a few hundred copies with books that might sell 5,000, which is not much by uh, standards of commercial publishing, trade publishing, as it's called, um, but, you know, was, would be a kind of bestseller for us and, and make us some useful uh, money. And we, we're always having to balance those two things, and um, there are always people... <clears throat> within the BFI and outside who wanted to trim our budget because what we published was too intellectual or it wasn't about British cinema or it wasn't this or it wasn't that, you know. Um, and so we're always basically trying to justify what we did rather than just pleasing ourselves. Can we race ahead and finish up with what I think are probably your lasting contributions as a publisher but which also included very important work by you, namely the BFI Classics and Modern Classics film yeah. series. I think that was the best idea I ever had in publishing. Some might say the only idea <laughs> I ever had in publishing. Um, 
What happened was, uh, there was a guy called David Meeker who worked in the film the National Film Archive. And he had a project. He said, many classic films of the past do not exist in a state where they can be projected to audiences. Or if they do, the copies are mangled, there are bits missing, you know, whatever. And what we need to do is to establish a collection of prints of the great classic films restored and, you know, uh, re, redone in every way that he's doing. And, um, and then we can show these films to uh, the audience at the National Film Theatre, which was also part of the BFI, and a kind of regular programme of education. You know, these are the films you ought to see if you're, if you're interested in cinema. So eventually he drew up a list of 360 of these films, which would mean you could, in theory, program one for just about every day of the year. And in the course of the year, if you went to all these screenings, uh, you would have a, a wide knowledge of cinema. And I said to David, it's a great idea. Uh, and he said, well, the problem is getting the money for these restorations. And I said, well, that's your department, not mine. But I said, if this is primarily an educational project, which I think it is, the way to educate people is to give them books. Nobody, I think, ever learned a lot about the cinema just by sitting there and staring at the screen. I don't say you shouldn't watch films, of course not, that'd be nonsense, but you need to read if you want to find out more. And so I said, what we need is a book about every one of these films. And I said that would be a tall order if by book you meant something of 80, 100,000 words. And I said, and what I want is to get authors who aren't necessarily, you know, we don't necessarily want to round up the usual suspects. We want to spread our <coughs> um, field a bit wider and um, get filmmakers, novelists, television personalities, actors, all sorts of people who um, have experience of film, who love film, and uh, get them to write about their favourite movie if it appears in the list. And then I thought, they won't write a whole book, these people, they're too busy. They, um, and I said, but well, if we offered them to write a short book, 20,000 words, say, you know, everybody who's interested in cinema at all has a favourite film, or oh, I've always wanted to, you know, study that a bit more, write something about mm, it. Yeah. So um, we went to all these people, it, it certainly included academics as well, but other people, and said to them all, here's a list of 360 films, which one would you like to write about? And um, we got a surprisingly kind of varied um, collection, collection of... Now before we go on to that, let's start with the first one, which was sent to people, I think, as some kind of model which is your wonderful book, which you had carefully reserved for yourself, on The Searchers. No, no, Stagecoach. Stagecoach, I'm sorry, Stagecoach. Well, yeah. I didn't reserve it to myself. Oh, all right. Colin McCabe was my boss at the BFI yeah. by this time. And he said, well, it's a really good idea. He said, you've mm. got to write one to see how it goes. Mm. Is it possible to write something useful? Is it manageable? Uh, you know, you've got to write a... Um, an example that we can show to other people and say, well, it should be something like this. And so I looked at the films, he said, well, there must be something there you want. He said, you're interested in Westerns. Mm. 
write about Stagecoach, and that was an instruction. I didn't say, but it's not my favourite Western noir. I might prefer to write about a film noir or something like that. I was told to write about okay, Stagecoach, okay, yeah. so I did. And I had a lot of fun doing it, I have to say. And uh, we got together a disparate group of the, the first four books that we published were um, a, about a British war film called Went the Day Well, which was written by Penelope Houston, the editor of Sight and Sound. Um, Double Indemnity, which was written by the then critic of, I think it's Time, Time Magazine, Richard Schickel. Which is a great one, I think. Yeah. I really like and The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and that was written by Sam Rushdie. Rushdie. Colin had known someone from Cambridge. As one does. Apparently. <laughs> I was never there myself. Um, and uh, he said, the problem is going to be the money. He said, but I think I know how to do that. Because Salman, you know, he's making big money now, even though he's still living undercover and you know, in imminent you know, fear of imminent assassination. There was a fatwa imposed on him because of the satanic verses. It was still active at that time. So he said, what I think I'll do is I'll say to to someone, give us the book rights and then you can have the magazine rights uh, and any subsequent rights. And so uh, we decided that everybody who wrote in this series would get paid a £1,000 down that was it, lump sum. And no more, no less. So he was given £1,000, but he then sold the magazine rights to, I think, the New Yorker or something like that, and of course made a lot more money than, than that. So he was reasonably happy, I think. And um, editing it was a bit strange for me because I never met him at that time. I would get mysterious phone calls and someone on the line would say, Salman Rushdie wishes to speak to you. <laughs> and the phone call would come from I knew not where. I always said, don't tell me where he lives or anything about him. I don't want to be tortured to reveal essential information. So uh, anyway, so these four books were uh, the first four to be and published. And the, the, there was a model that Stagecoach provided. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, I would say to people, they said, what sort of book? I would say, well, it's got to be full of your enthusiasm. But I would say we would like something about how the film got made, the production history. You know, there might be a lot to say about that. With some films, that's almost the entire story, really. Um, Or there may be relatively little, but there should be something about that. You should generally try to treat, you know, all aspects of the film, you know, the scripting, the acting, the direction, the camera work, etc., etc., um, and produce your analysis of, you know, what the film is about, how it works, etc. And then at the end, you should say something about the marketing and and how the film did with audiences and what critical reputation it has, and so on and so forth. So that was it. We were up and running. Well, Stagecoach is a great example. You did do one on The Searchers. I did later, later. yes. yes. And in the modern film classics, you did Unforgiven. I did Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Which is a wonderful book. Which I enjoyed writing. I remember having a long phone conversation with David Webb Peebles, who wrote the the script, which was originally called The Cut Whore Killings. (laughs) 
And you can see why they didn't go along with that. And I said, well, who, who thought up the title Unforgiven? I said. And he said, I've no idea. You better ask Clint about that. So I tried to. I almost got to interview him at one point, and then he, he cried off. And so I never did discover who uh, called it the unforg uh, who called it Unforgiven. And I was never quite certain who was Unforgiven and why. But <laughs> there we are. Yeah. It is a great title. Huh? Yeah, it is. For yeah. a truly memorable, remarkable yeah, yeah, yeah. film. Yeah. Um, and then, having got the film series up and running, we, I always wanted to publish more stuff about television. And I thought, we, we really need to run a kind of parallel series about television, about uh, TV drama series, about you know, other uh, genres within television and so on. And, uh, of course, you made your very notable contribution to that series in your book about the Avengers, which I think was one of the best examples of that kind of thing that's been done. Well, thank you. So, the Modern Film Classics series gets going? Yeah, well, people um, would say to me when I asked what film they want to write about, they said, I want, because the film, David Meeker believed that the cinema ceased to be interesting about the middle of the 80s and there was nothing else after that. And I would rubbish that idea consistently. Um, and often people we are asked to write would want to write about a more recent film. And I thought, well, it's clear that there are many more recent films for which there would be an audience if we produced a book, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Colin said, we'll run a parallel series called Modern Classics, which won't be based on any pre-existing list. We'll make up the list as we go along. So we did. So we, we, we probably published about 30 books and that's it. And then after I left the BFI, they amalgamated the two series into one. So it's just BFI film classics yes. now. Yeah. So you leave the BFI late 90s? 96, mm -hmm. yes. And then throughout all this time you continue doing some writing and you do a little bit of teaching after yes. that at different universities. Well, after I left the BFI, they gave me early retirement, so I was lucky there because they gave me my pension, which was in effect the pension I would have received if I'd stayed on and collected it. Obviously, the pension wasn't as much as the salary. It left a gap that I had to fill, somehow a financial gap. And so I got uh, a number of jobs teaching. I, I taught at um, uh, down in Southampton for a while. I taught a class at King's College London, um, various places in the States. I, I taught semester in Texas, although I think that was before I left the BFI. And you'd also <coughs> taught at NYU though again before you'd left the yeah, BFI. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you continued to publish. Yeah. You wrote a uh, a book about representation of Native Americans. That was the last thing I published, basically. Um, and you did Nobody the... noticed it. I don't think anybody read it. I think it's my best book, but there, you know. Do you? Yeah. I do, actually. And, and there's the big, wonderfully profound, but beautifully illustrated and produced world cinema book. That yes. Is a kind of coffee table yes. monster. Cin yeah. Cinema Today. Well, that came about because I knew somebody who worked at Fiden Books who published, who published 
great big glossy art books, coffee table books, mm. the classic mm. icon. Mm. And they were, had a series called Art Today, Architecture Today, whatever. And they said they wanted to do one called Cinema Today. And I said, when is today? And they said, well, um, from about the late 70s, I guess. And is this has got to be world cinema. And I thought, my God, <coughs> there's a bit of work involved in that. Um, but then I was thinking um, that uh, if I did that, I, they were going to pay me quite a lot of money. Um, and I could do that, or I could teach another semester at university, uh, which was only part-time teaching, for which I would get about the same amount of money. And I thought, what's more interesting, really, at this point? I thought, it'd be great to write this book. Um, the, the trouble is, I, I always used to get asked at, at conferences, uh, SCS conferences, you know, why... You published my book. Why can't I find it in any bookshops? Why can't... You know, why don't you sell more copies? Why don't you advertise it? Why don't you do this? And I would have to explain to them that there are two kinds of publishing. There's trade publishing, which is publishing for the general market, mm. and there's academic publishing. And they're not related. There's very little crossover. And um, I said, with academic publishing, you publish the book you want to write, and you deliver it when you feel like it. Uh, although there's always a deadline in the contract, nobody ever takes the slightest notion of that. And um, by and large, it doesn't get interfered with, you know. Um, and um, that's the way that people like it in academia. But the uh, downside of that is your book gets very little promotion and you don't get paid anything but peanuts uh, to write it. There's trade publishing, which you get lots of promotion and publicity, you will be able to go into a bookshop and see your book there displayed. And, um, but you have to write the book they want you to write exactly to the length and covering what they want covered and everything like that. They will basically tell you what to write, not what to write, but what to write about. And uh, in exchange for this, they will pay you serious money. Um, but you can't have it both ways. You can't write a book you want to write. I mean, unless you're some kind of a, you know, talent or famous or whatever. But as an academic, you can't write a book you want to write and expect it to be in every bookshop. It never will be. You know. So um, I decided that just for once I would write a trade book and see how it went. And the beauty of writing for Fidem was they had a full-time picture researcher who was assigned to me. So when I produced the manuscript, they said, we want a list of every film mentioned in the book. So I produced this list, about a thousand titles. And uh, she went off and started digging around um, to get pictures for all these films. And so she assembled a splendid selection of colour pictures and um, then the designer got to work laying it all out. And so they did a lot of... Well, I had to work with them because she would produce all these photos she'd found. And she said, well, which ones do you want? And I said, well, this, this one, but not that one, that one, that one, not that mm. one. Yeah. Um, so there's quite a lot of work involved. And I had to do rewriting and, you know. But it was, um, it was fun. Oh, it's very hard work. Terrific contribution. I was watching 
two or three movies a day and reading two or three books a day at one point. I was plowing through Indonesian cinema and... Uh, and uh, I remember the, there was a search for the gay western or the pornographic western or something at some point for the interest in the interest of completeness. No, I think that was when I was doing my Companion to the Western. Oh, sorry, the BFI Companion to the yeah, Western, yeah. which is a great, great book. Well, that was fun too. That, was that in two editions? Did that go We edition? did bring out a second edition, but it wasn't much updated. We just put in a few Little extra bits. films. It has the memorable entry on bathtub scenes in Westerns. Yes, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> the more Westerns I saw, the more I realised there was a scene in which the... Somebody takes a takes bath, a tub. yeah. And um, in in the classic kind of uh, scenes, they're about you know the transfer from the wilderness to yeah. civilization. You get spruced up and so on, but they were also <clears throat> ones that worked against. Um, that I think Clint thing. might have to take a pistol at some point. Yeah, well, there's one scene I remember in one of Leone's um, Dollars films where Eli Wallach is sitting in the bath. And this guy comes in who's angry with him or something and threatens him. And uh, Wallach just pulls the gun out of the bath and shoots him. And he says, if you want to talk, talk. If you want to shoot, shoot. That's right. So um, nowadays, you, since retirement from the BFI, since finishing book writing, you've produced quite a bit for Sight and Sound, for example? Well, I wouldn't say quite a bit, but I, I wrote some reviews, book reviews, film reviews, yeah. <coughs> yeah. But now you would see yourself more as a consumer of these things, as it were? Yeah, I watch a lot of film. I'm a yeah. member of BAFTA, and it's the awards season, so... BAFTA is like the Academy yes. system here. And in the last uh, six weeks, I've probably watched mm. about 40 films, right. um, which are all up for awards. And so you're a voter? I'm a voter. In that. You have to vote. If you don't vote, they won't send you any screeners next year. So, yeah. Indeed. So you continue to have really a significant part to play in film culture, uh, as you've done really since the early 1970s. It's a remarkable career and all the better, one might say, for having been something you fell into. Yes. There's a lot of accident in all of this. When I left there? university, I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. Mm. So, yes, I fell into it. I turned my hobby and kind of lifelong passion into a job. Into a job. Very I, few people are able to do that. That's correct. And the other thing that I think is important to note is the concept of a formation. Yeah. Suddenly there are these formations that occasionally emerge. You're yeah. in a couple of different ones. Yeah. And they don't last very long, no. in my experience, but they are enormously exciting and stimulating and very when, enriching, you when you're in them. Yeah. And they can have a ripple effect on your thoughts for the rest of your day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the stuff I was arguing about at screen is still informs, you know, if I'm going to write something, I think. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made me the man I am today. Well, on that note, Edward Buscombe, what can we do but say thank you to the man you are today? Well, thank you.